Well, let's, uh, let's jump right in and let's begin by uh, defining what excommunication is. I, I, I'm uh, assuming most of you were with us um, when we went through the sermon on church discipline. So we're not going to go over all the steps of church discipline all over again, but rather we're going to just deal with excommunication. And uh, so we'll begin on the note of def- uh, defining what we mean when we talk about excommunication. Now, just think about the word itself, excommunication. What word do we find within that word? Communication, right? Communication. And communication is what you have when you have a relationship between people, right? Two people communicate with each other, or various groups of people communicate with each other. Um, And then the prefix ex, E-X. Well, of course, that indicates then that the relationship no longer exists, right? You no longer have communication. It's ex-communication. It no longer exists. Um, And within the word communication, we see the word commune. Commune, right? And communion, as you know, has to do with intimate fellowship uh, that people can have with one another. And in the context of the church, we experience that in our times of fellowship together generally as God's people, and also even more intimately when we come to have the Lord's Supper together in communion. And so excommunication then has to do with the removal of those privileges and blessings. If somebody has been excommunicated, then they no longer have a healthy relationship with the rest of God's people, all right? Um, The privileges that they once enjoyed such as being uh, able to commune in the Lord's Supper, but as well, as we will see, times of fellowship, those things have uh, come to an end uh, temporarily, we hope. Now, when is uh, excommunication to be administered? Well, um, excommunication is the most extreme censure that the church can administer and is therefore the final step in the disciplinary process. And so, therefore, it's reserved for those who refuse to repent of those sins that they've been called to repent of privately, and then more publicly with witnesses, and then in the most public way uh, before the church. People who have failed to repent after these attempts. Uh, Allow me, if I could, to read uh, the way our our own book of discipline describes this. It says that uh, not everything displeasing to an individual is ground for formal disciplinary process. Offenses which require discipline are of three kinds. Heresy, disregard for or violation of the moral law, which is refusal to submit in the Lord to the teaching and government of this church as being based upon the scriptures and described in substance in the constitution of the RPCNA. That's a vow for. And and contempt for the courts of the church. Same vow which is refusal in case of need or correction in doctrine or life to respect the authority and discipline of the church. Uh, That's found in uh, chapter 1, section 6, page E3 of our Constitution. Now, the first example in the Bible that we see of excommunication really occurs right after the fall uh, with our first parents, Adam and Eve. Uh, You remember, uh, what was life like for Adam and Eve before the fall? They had intimate fellowship with one another and intimate fellowship with God himself. God walked with them, right, in the garden, and they enjoyed all those blessings. And then upon sin, what happened? They're driven out of paradise. 
uh, and they, they, they no longer have uh, those privileges and blessings that they once enjoyed. Right? So that's the first example that we have of that. And, um, and when we go further into the, New Ta- into the Old Testament, um, we then also are able to see what uh, excommunication actually looks like uh, in a more formal sort of a way as it exists among the people of God. And um, in the Older Testament, excommunication is oftentimes, well, mostly uh, referred to as being cut off. That's what the Old Testament rendering of excommunication is, is to be cut off. Um, And being cut off could take place in uh, a few different ways or different levels of severity. Sometimes, for instance, God would cut people off from his people by way of a harsh providence. Think of the sons of Korah. That's an ugly example of excommunication. God cut off a, a large number of people in a most dramatic way, swallowed them up in the earth. Right? God did that. Um, other times, people uh, would be cut off by imposition of the death penalty for their sins. Think of the sin of Achan. He and his family were killed over his sin. And then other times, being cut off had to do with a person's standing in and among the covenant community. In these cases, being cut off resulted in a person being temporarily barred from being able to participate in things like the Passover and the other feasts and the other ceremonies tied to worship. Um, Some uh, underwent being exiled and basically shunned insofar as remaining in unrepentance was concerned. And we have three examples of this. I'll just run through them very quickly. Uh, Genesis 17, 14. Uh, God is speaking to Abraham, and he's talking about the covenant of grace and the sign of the covenant with circumcision. And he says this, And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, so somebody refuses the sign of the covenant, well, they're to be removed from the covenant people. Okay, that's, a re- that's rebellion. Uh, Exodus 12, 19. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. And then lastly, in Numbers 15, verses 30 and 31. But the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native born or stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord and he shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off His guilt shall be upon him. Okay, so those are Old Testament examples of excommunication. Now, when we come on to the New Testament scene, um, we see that there was still uh, this practice going on. People still observed excommunication along these same lines. And uh, we have one example in the Gospel of John when we see that, um, well, we read there John 16, 1 and 2. And this has to do with somebody's standing within the context of the synagogue, the covenant people of God. 
John 16, 1 or 2. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus says, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Now, the example, reason I use that for an example is just to show that it was still being understood that the elders within the, uh, the church could put you out if they thought that you were in grave sin and unrepentant in your grave sin. Okay? And these people were scared of that. Now, um, so then, to be excommunicated in the Old Testament was to be cut off from the privileges and the blessings of belonging to the covenant community. It was to be disassociated with God and his people and to be considered an outsider. And um, unsurprisingly then, that same concept remains true in the New Testament understanding of excommunication. And with that, I'll ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, and we'll just move down to verse 15. And uh, we'll read to verse 18. Or 17. 18, 15 to 17. All right. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear... Take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But, and here's what I want to highlight, if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. If you would turn over now to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter five and uh, beginning at verse four. Paul says there in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse five, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And then go down to verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Verse 11. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what do I have to do with judging those outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. And therefore, here's a conclusion, put away from yourselves the evil person. And... Um, one more, Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Beginning at verse 6. 
2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Then down to verse 14. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now the reason I've included that particular text with the others is because it's related, but there is a difference. And I'll highlight the difference between those things momentarily. So the, the church is a covenant community. It is a community in covenant with the Lord and with his people. And so when a person is cut off from the church, he or she is cut off from the community. They are no longer to be considered brothers and sisters in the family, nor are they to enjoy the privileges they once had prior to their excommunication. Now, in speaking about this whole uh, matter of excommunication, we need to understand that um, where the authority comes from to excommunicate people, okay? It's really important. Um, the authority of Jesus Christ and him alone is the only authority by which a person can be excommunicated. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You remember that. That's after his resurrection, right? And then uh, in the book of the Revelation, in chapter 1 and verse 18, Jesus says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. He has the keys. So he has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has keys over Hades and death. And what do we learn but that he has entrusted those keys to the elders of his church? Okay? Matthew 16, 18, and 19. Jesus is speaking to Peter, and you know the passage. And Jesus says to him, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And we know that he wasn't referring to Peter alone there. It's not Peter being the first pope and having this authority. This is the authority that's entrusted to Peter and the rest of the apostles and elders of the church. Two chapters later, Matthew 18, um, verses 18 to 20. Jesus there says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And so we do well to understand that uh, this whole aspect of church discipline and authority within the church is ministerial in nature. Elders are ministers of Christ. We are not Christ himself. We are ministers of Christ. Our, our work is ministerial rather than magisterial, right? The, the Roman Catholic Church believes in the magisterial aspect of, of uh, the authority in the church. And the Pope is the highest authority within the church. And essentially what he says, Christ has to do because he said it. We do not look at it that way. We do what we do because this is what Christ's word has instructed us to do. 
And so that's the basis of our authority is Christ and his word and his entrustment of the keys to his elders. And so because the authority comes from Jesus, all church censures, whether it's an admonishment or rebuke, a censure from the table or excommunication, all church censures must be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because by that, we acknowledge the root of the authority. Okay? I, we read 2 Thessalonians 3 in verse 6. Paul says there, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, do this. In 1 Corinthians 5, we read there also in verses 4 and 5, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, do this. So it's to be done in his name. It's also to be done in his presence, that is in the presence of Christ. Jesus, we know, is, is present with us in a special manner whenever his ordinances are administered. Jesus is our preacher each Lord's Day. He is spiritually present with us when we administer baptism and, and observe the Lord's Supper. And likewise, as we have already seen in the passages that we've read, he's also present and is the authority behind the pronouncement of excommunication. This is why this step is to be done in the name of Jesus Christ. It's to be done in his name, by his authority, and in his presence. You see, my friends, this is not an ordinance that was invented by men. It's not simply um, an administrative tool that somebody dreamt up in order to help keep the membership rules in order. Okay? Okay. No, when somebody goes through the disciplinary process and ends up being excommunicated with just cause, with just cause, they are being excommunicated by Jesus Christ himself. As we're told in Matthew 16 and 18, Jesus is binding and loosing in heaven whatsoever is rightly loosed or bound on earth. We're even told that he is there in the midst of the elders whenever two or three are gathered together for the purpose of dealing with church discipline. Jesus is present here on earth when the elders come together and whatever they do on earth in his name, by his authority, and in his presence is a reflection of what he does in heaven. We don't move his hand. We're simply acknowledging this is true already and in agreement with his authority. But this is also true when it comes to restoration. So not just binding and putting out people from the church, but also loosing or loosening. Forgiveness and restoration are also reflected on earth from heaven above. So when somebody repents and they come back and we say, you are forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ, again, that's reflected in heaven. And we can say that with the authority of Christ, that you are forgiven and can be restored. In fact, this is the very thing we see happening uh, with, uh, in one case, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're told of an immoral man who did some pretty sick, twisted stuff. Uh, and uh, that, that's, the, that's the one whom Paul is saying, you need to take note of that wicked man and put him out, right? Well, guess what? Uh, he was restored. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in verses 10 and 11, we read this. Now, whom you forgive anything, Paul says, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven the one for your sakes. Again, in the presence of Christ, so there's that acknowledgement again, lest Satan should take advantage of us, or, or for we are not ignorant of his devices. So uh, he, this man is restored. He's forgiven his sins. He's brought back into the fellowship of the church. And uh, in the same way that uh, those things were done in the name and in the presence and by the authority of Christ, the reversal of those things, those centers, are also true in the same way. What are the keys of the church that are given to the church? You'll notice Jesus mentions that there are keys, plural, of the, of the kingdom. Not just one key, but there are keys in the plural. Um, well, there's what some refer to as the key of knowledge. And we get that from uh, the scripture language itself in Luke eleven fifty two, 52. Jesus is speaking to scribes and to Pharisees, and he says, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those... Who were entering, you who were entering in you hindered. So there's this aspect of a key of knowledge. And really, this is that key that is given to the elders uh, by way uh, by which Jesus gives to his, his elders wisdom to be able to discern matters and to rule on matters. We see this at various um, at various um, levels. You have the collective wisdom of your elders locally in your session. Right? Remember, the, the, the principle here, of course, is in the presence of m many counselors, there's much wisdom. And uh, so, you know, you hope you have a, a, a group of men who can weigh in with wisdom uh, about certain things. Well, they will if, if they are doing things rightly and as we're prescribe, prescribing them here, they will have that wisdom. That's part of the key of knowledge that God gives to his, his elders. And that's, again, displayed locally at the session level. It's displayed also at the presbytery level. And it's also displayed at the highest court, the synod. Okay. Key of knowledge. And so it has to do with all matters related to the church in relation to her doctrine and her government, including her decisions that she makes with regard to church discipline. And, of course, that's the other key, the, the key of discipline. Um, by the faithful preaching of the gospel, the key is used to open the door of heaven for people to come through whom the Lord is calling to himself. So through the proclamation of the gospel, the key, that's a key that God has given to the church. And by the faithful administration of excommunication, the door to heaven is shut and is locked to them who remain in unrepentant sin. Now, as we think about the excommunicated, the scriptures paint the picture to us that they are to be considered unbelievers. They are to be treated like and, and considered to be unbelievers by those who are in the church. Matthew 18, 17. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, in some ways... This is worse than simply being considered an unbeliever, right? Because to be considered a tax collector was, be, uh, was really to be taught, uh, thought to be a traitor to your people. That's the way tax collectors were viewed, right? Jewish tax collectors were traitors to the Jews. And that's the reason they had such dis disdain for them. They did not want to be around them. You can be sure 
they were never invited to the tables of the rest of the Jewish population, right? Um, but excommunication, uh, we are told, is, uh, involves regarding these folks as heathens and tax collectors. Now, I realize, upon hearing this, some people would immediately respond with the understanding that these are the very kinds of people that Jesus went and preached to. And that's true. He did. He did. But I'm not persuaded, after studying this passage, I'm not persuaded that that's the way Jesus is using these terms here in relation to church discipline. You see, those who have been excommunicated are not just like the average unbeliever who's never belonged to the church. These are people who are once part of the church, but who have been cut off from her. And so Jesus speaks this way here, not to indicate that these would be the kind of people he would go to eat and to drink with, as we know he did in other instances, but rather he uses, Jesus uses this terminology here because his audience was familiar with what it meant to be a heathen and a tax collector and what that relationship looked like in the covenant community. Okay? Let me quote a few people here for you because I think they will help us to understand this a little bit better because I know it's not immediately uh, easy to, to grasp. It wasn't for me. Calvin says... For heathens and publicans, having at that time regarded by the Jews with the greatest hatred and detestations, he compares them to unholy and irreclaimable men who yield to no admonitions. Certainly, Calvin says, he did not intend to enjoin them to avoid the society of heathens of whom the church was afterwards composed. Nor is there any reason at the present day why believers should shrink from associating with publicans. But in order that he might be more easily understood by the ignorant, Christ borrowed a mode of expression from what was then customary among his nation. And the meaning is this, that we ought not to have, that we ought, excuse me, that we ought to have no intercourse with the despisers of the church until they repent. Luther uses the, the imagery back in verses 12 uh, and 13 of uh, sheep uh, leaving the fold and what have you. And he says, by his sin, the sinner thus makes himself one who is not a sheep, nor wants to be sought, but intends to be completely lost. This is to be like a heathen and a tax collector. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon on the subject, says that Christ's meaning must be that we should treat an excommunicated person as the Jews were wont to treat the heathens and the publicans. And as the disciples had been always taught among the Jews and brought up and used to treat them, they would by no means eat with publicans and sinners. They would not eat with the Gentiles or with the Samaritans. And therefore, Peter uh, doesn't eat with the Gentiles when the Jews were present. That was what he got confronted over with Paul, right? And that's because it was a leftover tradition. You did not eat with Gentiles. You did not eat with publicans and, and what have you, okay? And here's perhaps the more, um, well, this is a more contemporary commentator, so it might be easier to, to hear uh, read. 
R.T. France, in his commentary, says, a Gentile and a tax collector were proverbially people from whom a good Jew kept his distance. While Jesus rejected this attitude in its literal application, for instance, in chapter 8 and verses 5 to 13, and chapter 9 and uh, verses 9 to 13, Jesus can still use the expression metaphorically for someone to be avoided uh, or to be ostracized or, as some put it, to be put in quarantine. After all persuasion has failed, he says, a cold shoulder may still bring him to his senses. At any rate, there can be no real fellowship with someone who has so blatantly set himself against the united judgment of his fellow disciples. And here's the thing, folks. Prior to being excommunicated, all of us as the people of God are obligated to try and win our brother. And that's what we have attempted to do in this case. And many of you have attempted to do in this case. We together have attempted to do. Prior to excommunication, we are obligated to try and win our brother, as Matthew 18 instructs us. But that said, after he or she has been excommunicated, something changes. Something changes. Do we still desire their repentance? Absolutely we do. But we no longer go to them trying to win them over as a brother or sister because they are not to be considered a brother or sister anymore. From that point forward, it's now, it's now the painful repercussions of their discipline that we hope will have the effect of helping them to recognize the great gravity of their censure. Any communication with them from that point forward, after excommunication, must be limited to calling them to repentance. And even such communication as this might eventually even make, uh, come to an end if they continue and continue and continue to, to uh, not heed our calls to repentance. After all, we see limitations as to sharing the gospel with people when they refuse again and again and again after many efforts have been made, right? Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, 14, and whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. There comes a time and you have to say, okay, I've done what I can do. Lord, help them. Same thing with pearls before swine, right? How, how, how do you keep doing this and allowing them to trample underfoot the, the gospel of grace? Or does there come a time when you say, all right, I've, we've done as much as we can do. And now we hope that the pinch, the sting of discipline will take its effect. Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 remind us that the, the whole church is obligated to follow this instruction from our Lord. It's not just the elders who need to abide by these principles, but the whole church of Christ needs to abide by these principles. The whole church is to treat them like heathens and tax collectors. James Durham, in his work entitled Concerning Scandal, said that in regard to us dealing with people who are um, excommunicated, he says that abstinence from unnecessary civil fellowship as not to frequent their company to visit them, to dine or sup with them, 
or to have them dining or supping with us, or to use such familiarity in such things as ordinarily is with others, or possibly has been with them. And so it is in 1 Corinthians 5, and it is no less the people's duty to carry so, that it may be a means for their edification that proportionally it is the minister's duty to instruct in past tense, past sentence, etc. So in other words, it's not just the sentence that the elders have declared that uh, needs to carry weight with these matters, but all of us have a duty to carry this out together so that they will feel the full impact. See, it wouldn't be the same if it was just the elders who stopped inviting them over for supper and interacting with them like we used to do. Uh, they might be easily able to get over that, um, but not so if the whole church uh, does this. Um, And I would remind you that um, in our vows of church membership, we all together make vows together that we will, as the wording is, um, promise to respect the authority and the discipline of the church. This is one of those instances um, where we all together have to keep our vow. It's not just the elders who have to keep this vow. We're all members. We've all made these vows and we all need to uh, respect, promise to respect the authority and the discipline of the church. Uh, in Hebrews 13, 17, uh, the preacher to the Hebrews says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And by this, we learn really, um, it's not practiced very well in the visible church as a whole, but... Um, but it is the case that these censures are meant to be observed not just by our congregation and those who have made these vows before the Lord, but by the whole church of Christ. It's, sadly, we're so fragmented within the visible church that not many churches will, will accept or even acknowledge the discipline of this particular body. Um, but that doesn't mean we should neglect what other churches have done concerning other people when they come into our context. We do well to respect the authority of, this, uh, of these censures whenever they occur lawfully. Now, you might have a situation where somebody was um, uh, unlawfully judged, and that's a different matter. You can investigate that. The elders can try to figure out best they can what the matter is. But, but insofar as somebody's been lawfully censured by another church, the whole church is supposed to, is supposed to acknowledge that. <clears throat> And um, I would remind you also that given the fact that we are to consider them to be as unbelievers, well, we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So we don't share tables with them. We don't do things like that with them. And especially because they're not just your average unbeliever anymore, right? Now there's somebody who was once part of you and now is no longer. And that's a different situation. No, so let's get more practical then. How are we to, what are some of the, the more practical things um, with regard to this censure and uh, how it applies to us interacting with those who've been excommunicated? Uh, one of you reminded me of the uh, Church of Scotland's first book of discipline. Uh, and in, in the section on ecclesiastical discipline, it says this, uh, after which sentence, that is excommunication, may no person his wife and family only accepted, 
have any kind of conversation with them, be it in eating and drinking, buying or selling, yea, in saluting or talking with them, except that it be at the commandment or license of the ministry for his conversion, that he by such means confounded, seeing himself abhorred of the faithful and godly, may have occasion to repent and be so saved. The sentence of his excommunication must be published universally throughout the realm, lest any man should pretend ignorance. And um, again, this is a, another case where we see that because there are so many different churches and different denominations, uh, something like this would have had a greater impact back in the day because back in the day, it was just basically one town, one local congregation in the, for the parish. And so if somebody was excommunicated from that local church in that town, it would have a huge impact on those who've been excommunicated. That's not so much the case anymore because people can go find other circles of fellowship outside of the one that they once belonged to to, to make up for that. It doesn't hurt as bad. Doesn't, you don't feel the pinch as bad if you're going to neglect um, the censure. Now, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I mentioned that there was a difference between this passage and uh, the Matthew passage and the 1 Corinthians passage. Um, and, and that's true because in the 2, Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 passage, we're given a picture there of how we're to interact with people who are under the discipline of the church but not yet excommunicated. Not yet excommunicated. Let me read that passage just one more time for you in chapter 3, verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. You'll notice in this passage, the person is still considered a brother. He's still considered a brother. That you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. Now, when somebody's excommunicated, they're no longer considered a brother. They're to be considered an unbeliever. So Paul has in mind here somebody who is under discipline, but yet not yet ex excommunicated. And you'll notice, we're not to hang out. He says, we're not to keep company or to have fellowship, even with those who are still considered brothers in Christ who are living disorderly lives. Think about that. Those who live contrary to the way that they ought to live. Uh, Paul is saying if somebody claims to be a Christian but is living like hell, if I could put it that way, you're not to keep company with that person, even if he still has not yet been disciplined or excommunicated to the full, uh, like they should, should be if they're unrepentant in their sin. Right? So he says don't even keep company with a brother who walks disorderly. And then in verses 14 and 15 of the same chapter, he says, and if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So, so there's still that desire to see repentance in his life and still an opportunity that we have to interact with them on a, you know, as we have opportunity to do that. And we are supposed to try to win our brother over still in that context. So even in church centers that are short of excommunication, the unrepentant are not to be treated as though everything is well within their relationship in the church. Because it's not. And that's to draw attention to their need to repent and to be reconciled, that they would be ashamed for living in the way that they're living in gross sin. 
And so we take these steps all the way up to the point of excommunication. But as we've already learned, once a person is excommunicated, he or she is no longer to be considered a brother or sister. They are cut off from the family, cut off from the covenant community. And I bring this to your attention because this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Okay? Um, if we are not to keep company with a so-called brother who is in sin, whether they are being worldly or holding to some heretical teachings, whatever the case may be, but they're still not yet excommunicated, if we're not supposed to be spending time with those people, then what does that to say about how we're to interact with those who've actually been excommunicated? First Corinthians 5, Paul is talking there about excommunication. He says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. He goes on to say, I'm not talking about those who are in the world, those who are in the church is who I'm talking about. But now I've written to you to not keep company with anyone named a brother or any so-called brother. He's not a name, he's not a brother in truth. He's somebody who thinks he's still a brother and he calls himself a brother. He calls himself a believer, but he's really not. To stay away from him and to put away from yourselves that evil person. Not even to eat with such a person, put away the, uh, from yourselves that evil person. And so what does it mean to keep company? He says, do not keep company with such people. Well, it means we're not to be mixed up together with them. Or we're not to be close to them. We're not to be intimate with them. Uh, by, by keeping company with such people, you see, you give the impression that you approve of their sin and that you align yourself with them in their unrepentance, that you're okay with it. And we can't be okay with it. Not even to eat with such a person, Paul says. And this isn't just in reference to the Lord's Supper, because some people tend to think that that's what Paul is saying here. That's not what he's saying. Okay? I mean, because think about it. Isn't it obvious that such people, you shouldn't share the Lord's Supper with such people as that? Isn't that obvious? They're excommunicated. They no longer have communion with you at the Lord's Supper. That's obvious. But Paul uses language here that makes it clear that he's not take, talking about the table of the Lord. He says, not only are we not to keep company with them, but he tells us we're not even to eat with such a person. He's going low. He's going to the common stuff. He's not talking about the high communion that we have around the table. He's saying you don't keep company with them outside of the church, and you certainly don't eat with them. And the reason, folks, for this is that the distance is to be, is to be placed between us and them in order for us to be able to call them back. The, there needs to be a gulf, right, between, and so they recognize there's a problem here, and you're calling them back to cross over the gulf to get back into fellowship and be restored to the fellowship of God's people. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, we're, to, we're, told, we're told to do this in order that the spirit of the person may be saved. That's our goal. You see, folks, he or she will never be convicted over their sin if all goes on normal between them and the rest of the, the church. Okay? Calvin, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 5.11, says this. He says, 
Uh, when, therefore, the church has excommunicated anyone, no believer ought to receive him into terms of intimacy with them. Otherwise, the authority of the church would be brought into contempt if each individual were at liberty to admit to his table those who have been excluded from the table of the Lord. And so what Paul means is that insofar as it is in our power, we are to shun the society of those whom the church has cut off from her communion. Any interactions then with, with them from this point forward need to be calls to repentance over their particular sins. Can we send them books or links to sermons or other works? Yeah, sure. Nothing wrong with that. But it ought not to take the form that it once did before they were excommunicated. If somebody desires to go to them and to call them to repentance, well, that would be fine. But I would suggest to you that ought not to take place over a long meal together with them in their home or in your home. It doesn't take very much time to go to your brother or sister and say, or not brother, to go to the excommunicated and say, you need to repent. You need to stop believing the stuff you're believing and this heresy that you're promoting. And you need to repent and come back. It doesn't take long to say that. And I would suggest to you that if you go to their house to have a meal with them, you're going to talk about a lot more things that would show some kind of intimacy with them that ought not be shown to them. And so no matter how grounded you think you might be, it is not good to entertain heresy and to entertain teachings of heresy. And that's not just my word, my friends. The Lord himself says this. Listen to what God says. 2 John 1, 9 through 11. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, that is the true doctrine of Christ as it's taught to us in the word, does not have God. And he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Then verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine... Do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. And Paul to Timothy says in 2 Timothy 2, 16 to 18, But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message, Paul says, will spread like cancer. Some, some uh, translations say spread like gangrene. Hymenius, Paul says, and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed, and they overthrow the faith of some. Because people opened their doors up to this heresy, people left the faith. And that's a true danger for us in dealing with heresy, heretical teachings, and people trying to promote it and trying to justify themselves in it to us. Efforts have been made. And I would suggest to you, my friends, it, the time has passed for trying to work through matters of Eastern Orthodoxy with them. Romans 16, 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. Don't be around them. Furthermore, we are told by Paul in Titus 3.10, Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. He's talking about people who are bringing false teachings, causing division. To spend time with people who hold to heresies is a dangerous thing. Now, 
one of the things that um, is occurring when we do excommunicate people is we are actually delivering them over to Satan. They are being delivered over to Satan. 1 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5, Paul says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You see, excommunication, folks, is a form of punishment. It is a form of punishment. It's designed to hurt. Those who are excommunicated are removed from all the blessings of the covenant community, and they are handed over to Satan. And so this means they have no basis for claiming and experiencing the blessings and privileges and the promises of the church. They no longer have God as their refuge. They no longer experience the peace and comfort in God. So long as they remain in this state, they are stripped of all the blessings that belong to God's people. They are given over. And we know that um, these blessings don't belong to them. Because those who still belong to Christ and are still united to Christ in his church, John tells us in 1 John 5, 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. The wicked one does not have anything to do with us that way. But the one who's been excommunicated, the Lord does employ the the work of Satan to buffet them. And by the way, uh, this aspect of delivering them over for the destruction of their flesh, I think some people um, look at that and think that, well, God um, simply might kill them, take their life, destroy their flesh, allow Satan to take their life in order to save their soul. Uh, That's not the way Paul's using the word uh, flesh there. Uh, The destruction of our flesh is the destruction of our, our fleshliness, our worldliness, our sinfulness. The thing that, we need, that needs to be mortified, God will send Satan to help with that mortification, make us to, to hurt under his discipline, what have, under the Lord's discipline that way, and then our flesh, right, be mortified that by God's goodness and grace we might be brought to repentance and therefore the spirit is saved. All right. Let me say also that it's important that we also understand that excommunication is not the final judgment. Excommunication is not the final judgment. The Lord alone knows the true state and condition of the soul of each person. When, when we as a church declare somebody to be excommunicated, we are not declaring that we happen to know that they are reprobate. 
That, that kind of knowledge does not belong to man. Rather, what we are declaring is that in our judgment, that person is not acting like a believer, rather that he or she is acting more like the world, more like an unbeliever, than they are a true child of God. And as such, we make a declaration that we put them out of the church and say, you don't fit. The way you are living does not fit with the way that you are to live within the covenant community. And so, as long as a person remains alive, there is hope for repentance. So long as they continue to breathe, there's still time to repent. I'll also add that elders are not infallible or inerrant. Elders can err. And therefore, excommunication is binding only insofar as it's done in accordance with God's will. Synods, councils, and sessions can err. They're made up of fallible men, made up of sinners. Your elders, myself included, are sinners. We can err. But that said, just because men can err doesn't mean they do err in every case. This is a serious matter, and all the parties involved ought to give it the weight that it's due and not simply assume not simply assume that the session has erred in this area. Now, let me just uh, make our way to the end here, and let me say that uh, there are purposes, and I think I've spelled these out maybe a little bit in times past for you, but looking at our confession of faith, there are, there are purposes, or there's an aim to excommunication, um, or I should say to all the steps of discipline, including excommunication. There is an aim and a purpose to it all. Uh, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 30, section 3, we read there that church censures are necessary for, number one, the reclaiming and the gaining of offending brethren, right? So even before excommunication, there's still that uh, attempt that we make to try to win our brother back. Um, again, uh, this has happened. We've seen uh, in the scriptures of the man in 1 Corinthians 5 who was won over, and we read about uh, that uh, change of, uh, of standing in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, you know, some of you and I uh, have known people in times past who were excommunicated, and God has used that in their lives to bring them back into the fold. So God does use this. Brothers and sisters are won back over. Okay, it does happen. But the confession also says that another reason or aim for these censures is to deter others from like offenses. Um, in other words, uh, it's to serve as a deterrent to others. So when these censures are put in place, other people recognize this is a big deal. We shouldn't, we shouldn't mess around like that. We shouldn't go in these directions like these people have gone and suffered for it. Uh, in, an Old Testament example, a New Testament example. Deuteronomy 13, 10 and 11. And you shall stone him with stones until he dies because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And so all Israel shall hear and fear and not again do such wickedness as this among you. So the stoning of those who were guilty of particular crimes was to serve as a deterrent to others to, to make the point, these are serious issues. This is a serious deal. Don't do this or you might be on the wrong side of, of a stoning, okay? 1 Timothy 5.20, 
Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. It's supposed to serve as a deterrent. We, we make these centers public so that all the people will recognize that it's the real deal. Uh, you remember um, the situation with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Uh, after God killed each of them, great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Not just those who saw it, but even those who heard about it were struck with fear over God's judgment upon them. It's also for the purging out of that leaven which may infect the whole lump. Galatians 5.9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Um, Hebrews 12.14-16, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Okay? Lest there be any fornicator or profane, profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Another aim is for the vindicating of the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel. Romans 2.24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. When the church allows sin to go on rampant without doing anything about it, the world looks at that and they say, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. And they make fun of us and they blaspheme Christ's church. And so we need to deal with sin in this way because uh, it's to honor uh, the name of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel. It's also for preventing the wrath of God, for preventing the wrath of God, which might, uh, God's wrath can justly fall upon the church if, if she falls into a state of sin and sin is not dealt with within the context of the church. God brings judgments upon his people. Again, remember the, the sin of Achan. Uh, remember also the warning in 1 Corinthians 11 with the Lord's Supper, Right? He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. And 1 Peter 4.17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So our response then to these things should be, first of all, we should, we should uh, when it comes to excommunication, we ought to mourn. We ought to mourn. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5.2, And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Paul says one of the things we should do when this sort of thing happens within the context of the church is we should mourn over sin. Not be puffed up and say, you know, we're mature enough to allow this kind of sin to go on among us. No, that's to be puffed up and prideful and arrogant. We're to mourn over these sins. 
We ought to mourn as though we've attended a funeral, spiritually speaking. Remember how the father mourned over the departure of the prodigal son. We also can continue to call them to repentance. I mentioned that earlier. This, and again, should be really the only reason we would go to them. Apart from doing things like we ought to do to our neighbor by way of mercy uh, ministries and things like this, they are still to be loved as our neighbor. Okay, uh, that's while they might not be a brother or sister in Christ anymore, we can love them as a neighbor. If we know that they have a mercy need or something like this, we can still uh, meet those kinds of needs for them, as we would um, another another uh, neighbor. We ought to pray for them. And I'll, I'll, I'll end on this. We ought to pray for them. Pray that they might come to an end of themselves. Pray that they might take to heart the seriousness of their sin and the seriousness of their state. Pray that they would feel the sting of their punishment. That their flesh might be destroyed so that they might be saved in spirit. Pray the Lord would soften their hearts to the gospel that just like the prodigal son, they might come to their senses and realize how good it was to be in God's house and to be a member of his family. I conclude with this quote from Durham when he says that yet even then prayer may be made for them. Where excommunication is no evidence that a person has sinned the sin against the Holy Ghost or that their sin is a sin unto death. And their necessities, if they are in want, may and should be supplied because they are men. And it is natural to apply to supply such. They may be helped also against unjust violence or from any personal hazard if they fall into it. And as occasion offers, folks may give a weighty serious word of admonition unto them and such like, because by such means, the end of the sentence and its weight are furthered and not weakened.